When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, and a managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ellen Dore Watson about her poem, In Which Raging Weather is a Gift, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Ellen Dore Watson's fifth full-length collection is Pray Me, Stay Eager. Her poems have appeared in the American Poetry Review, Tin House, Orion, and The New Yorker. She has translated a dozen books from Brazilian Portuguese, including the work of Adelia Prado. Watson served as poetry editor of the Massachusetts Review and director of the Poetry Center at Smith College for decades, and currently offers manuscript editing and workshops online. Ellen Dore Watson, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Describe where you're calling from. I'm calling on a beautiful autumn day from Conway, Massachusetts, which is where I have lived for over 40 years. And um, it's a rural place. And it's all about green and creatures. Love it here. (laughs) Lovely. Um, so you ran the Poetry Center at Smith College for decades, um, and, and you were running it when I was a Smithy. I graduated in 2009. Um, it's just a really lovely poetry center, um, and I took a great poetry class there with, with Daisy Freed, who was the resident poet when I was there. Would you talk a little bit about what it was like running the center for so long and, and how that work sort of changed over the years? It was a fantastic job, um, and Annie Butel, who created the center, um, and I were just partners in doing everything and, and, um, wonderful friendship developed. And of course it was, I was busier than I'd ever been, um, teaching and running the center and trying to write, um, too much, um, you know, memos and meetings and things for my taste, but, oh God, it was so exciting. And I met hundreds and hundreds of fabulous poets and it changed me. I learned so much from my students, student poets at Smith are fantastic. I'm still in touch with many of them. And yeah, it was a great, great job. And it's great now that Matt Donovan took over and is such a terrific director. And we got this huge, huge money from the Tamas Day Foundation, which is allowing him to do all kinds of things that we couldn't dream of earlier. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love, I just love how it feels like, it does feel like a center. Like it feels like a really crucial part of campus and, and of, of the English program. And, and now, I mean, of, you know, of the whole town and all these, these great poets coming into town to, to read at the poetry center. Yeah. Um, I also just think, uh, you know, I'm not a poet, <laughs> but when I was in college, I thought maybe I was, and I feel like poetry is such a, um, I don't know, it feels like a really good writing release for, for students who are in college and the students at Smith are so serious. And I love that they have somewhere like that, that they can be yeah, creative. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the great things is that we have students that are neuroscience majors and you know, mm. every major you can imagine. So one of the great things about teaching those students is that they write not just about their lives, but about what they're thinking about and what they're studying. Oh, that sounds fascinating, yeah. Um, I would love to start off with a reading. Would you read your poem from issue 23 for us? Sure. 
in which raging weather is a gift. Despite barriers of rat screen parge and tar, despite blustering wind in the chimney, I think I hear something setting up house in the cellar. It's a night to come in out of. No lamps, no heat, no water. I could use some music to muffle the barely audible visitor, but I'm low on batteries, and despite the wine sweating and losing its cool, it's my eyes the candlelight has me having, a row of fat-wicked flames doing the hula. I'm saying the sky changed everything at 4.50 p.m., and I'm not sorry I'm sitting in the bounteous dark here where it rarely gets worse. Why not hear cellar door rattle as merely wood, or six degrees of whatever? How material am I to the sky? Why should anyone need to decide whether to be a fearless haunting or a deliberate creature, warily, stealthily breathing? Thank you so much for reading that. I wonder if you could tell us what inspired you to to start work on this poem, like how that first draft came together. Well, it came together sitting in the dark, (laughs) (laughs) literally writing in my notebook because it's hard to read with a candle. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so uh, in using the in which convention, like from old serials that appeared in newspapers, um, I, I start poems often with a title series that helps me just get going and with no idea where exactly I'll go. So um, actually that, I think in this case, wasn't the title to begin with, because when I started it, I didn't realize it was going to turn out to be a gift. That sort of happens <laughs> midway through the poem. Um, but yeah, just to, to write what I was thinking about, and then um, it developed. And this, this poem, a lot of it was here on the first go, unlike many, many times, although it did go through quite a bit of revision. You know, you mentioned that the poem sort of turns in the middle. Um, and I feel like, you know, when you sit down, you don't exactly know where it's going to go. Can you talk about that a little bit, like the, the sort of the element of surprise when you're writing? Oh, it's crucial. Uh, I feel like if if I never, if I'm writing in my notebook and nothing happens to surprise me, then it's probably not going to become anything. Um, and you keep writing just to see. And sometimes you go back later and something surprises you. But um yeah, I think it's crucial to not know uh, what we're about when we set down to write. I mean, because all of our our worries and our concerns and our loves will come out when we write, but to have them appear sort of freshly at a given moment rather than in the canned way we think about them is a big is a big thing. Um, my father was a minister, and when I started writing poems, I sort of knew exactly what I was going to say and what the outcome was, and they were kind of dead on arrival. It took me a while to, and, and some drugs <laughs> in my early days, to to sort of open up and just say, "This is I'm a vessel. Let's see what comes." Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like you know, our thoughts are too much of a filter. Really. Yes. Yeah. Too thinky yeah. doesn't do it. You have to let the feelings <laughs> come through as they come. Um, as much as it's possible for a poem, uh, could you describe what, what you think the poem is about, if it's about something? Well, it's about me sitting there and sort of whining a little bit, but the despites all came in later when I realized there was a change. At first, I was just talking about the, the things that were happening. Um, but all of a sudden, um, in you know halfway through the poem, when it turns into It's My Eyes, the candlelight has me having. As soon as I started seeing those candle flames doing the hula, 
I was in a completely <laughs> different place. And, and that's why the poem manages to go on and not just be a list of, oh, gee, look at what's happening. It's a drag. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I think the other thing that shifts is um, the dark, you know, the dark becomes bounteous rather than something to be afraid of. And then I think it's important to, that what popped out was here where it really gets worse, which is today, knowing what's happening right now in Florida or mm -hmm. fires in the West or wherever. I mean, here we don't have usually terribly awful um, weather. So in, in, this, in the middle of this, it was important to me to realize that um, I can enjoy this because it's not going to be that kind of um, scary thing. Um, and then, and then after that, it's just sort of thinking about the other ways you can take a sound. You hear a sound as, as, you know, malevolent, and then you think, well, it's just wood rattling or, or maybe it's something mysterious. Um, and then that brought me to, and what does it matter? The world is going on and I'm just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a you know, maybe it's somebody, some kind of creature trying to get into my house because God knows I've had dead possums and live raccoons and all kinds of animals <laughs> that appear in my um, pantry cellar steps. But um, suddenly it, everything becomes more whole and more acceptable, I guess, whether it's a haunting or a, a creature that's just needing to breathe. And, and that sort of could be me or whatever creature I was imagining being invaded by. Mm. So I end in a, in a very different place than where than where I started. Yeah, I love that. I think that one of my favorite things about this poem um, is, is that, you know, it's sent, set during this bad storm and it has a kind of darkness to it or you expect it to. But then it has all these playful moments in it as well. You know, we have the wine sweating and losing its cool, the candlelight doing a hula, like you mentioned. Um, and some of that phrasing, it just feels really casual and kind of intimate and also sort of joyous. Um, and it definitely sounds like that was sort of your intention as the poem moved along. But but I wonder how you judge tone in those moments? Like how do you sort of massage the tone to make sure it, it feels right for what you're working on? Um, well, I guess that's a, the process of seeing what comes and then shaping. Um, you know, we talked about surprise. Um, I, I feel like there are two elements for me as a reader and a writer of poems that I, I need in poems, no matter what else they do. And one is surprise, whether it's language surprise or what happens in the poem or the shifts and intentionality. So I feel like then the poem, the tone, the the shape, everything else about how the poem is on the page, I like to see in it, even if I don't totally understand what it is, that that it's put down in a way that's trying to help the poem be what it is, not just, oh, I like to write in tersets today, or um, the tone suddenly shifts and the poem isn't shifting. So I liked the, and from the beginning, this poem had this kind of seesawing back and forth where each line one, um, the left hand start, starts at the left hand margin, and then each one in the middle, every other line indents. Um, and the shape of it didn't change that much because that seemed to suit this moment. So I guess probably I increased the jauntiness of the tone as I saw where it went and got mm -hmm. even more sort of free with that. Mm -hmm. Not sure what yeah, else to say, but that makes sense. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And it, it does feel like a turn and like it's sort of, yeah, build building as we go through with that sort of playfulness. Uh, another thing that I love about this poem is that it, it's sort of just a simple moment in time, just, you know, you sort of sitting there in the dark, but it's also about something 
really vast and sort of profound, like our position in the world or our connection, mm-hmm. our connection to other things in the world um, that we might imagine or that is real. Um, but then, you know, as I was thinking about that, I also sort of began to think maybe that's what all poems are doing. So I wonder, <laughs> um, you know, what you th- what you think about that? Are like are all poems small moments that are talking about the whole world? I have a lot of them for sure. Um, you know, sometimes they're about big moments and that tells us, it, you know, look, addresses the world in a different way. Um, but they're coming from a single voice. And that's the thing about poetry. I mean, a novel, you could have multiple voices or, or, um, you know, in a poem, well, different poems have different voices, even by the same person, but, um, there's something personal about them, I think. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm just, you know, as a prose writer, you know, as I said, I only wrote poetry in college. So I'm always sort of curious about how poets play with language and rhythm and sound or even line breaks and things like that. Do you, do you have a set process when it comes to that? Or are you just sort of, do things come kind of unconsciously and then later you sort of see what feels right? I do kind of try to let things come unconsciously to begin with, um, either writing in a journal and then going to the computer and seeing what, it, I mean, it, I'm freer if I write in a journal, not in lines. So I'm not imagining it as a poem. I'm just looking, trying to get down raw material. Mm-hmm. Once I go to the typewriter or typewriter, haha, um, computer, <laughs> um, then I go with, well, what does this feel like it might be in terms of form? Um, but it changes many times. In fact, part of my process of revision is to say, okay, I've got a poem that's in four line stanzas um, of this sort of length. Maybe I should try a different shape. Maybe it wants to be couplets or I'm constantly counting how many lines I have in the poem and thinking, okay, how many stanzas could that make and come out even? And then when I start working on a poem and I need to change things, of course, that completely screws up that model. And I I don't ever get attached to this has to be in tersets because I think the process of having to shift it um, in order to make it come out even or it refuses to makes me see what to take out. And what, it, you know, suddenly it almost works, but I have a half a line empty. What could go there? <laughs> so it's really just messing around for the longest time. And this one came together in a couple of months in a certain amount of revisions. Um, if we get to the other poem, um, that was over months and months and months and months. So sometimes they, <laughs> you know, they sort of come together sooner and sometimes not. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to have you read another poem for us. Um, we published a poem in January online called In Which I'm Not Allowed to Lie. And I would love it if you would read that for us. In Which I'm Not Allowed to Lie. It has an epigraph. Writing is a battle against lying from Elena Ferrante. In Which I'm Not Allowed to Lie. True. Time has neither legs nor mercy. True times two. And surely the best gift is that of attention. Look at me, though sometimes heavens know, not now. But does a withdrawn command imply a fib? If so, bring back your eyes. Here's my unmade face, naked truth. Do you detect a smidgen of mask in my flippancy? A maybe that isn't truly unsure but digs the stance? Honestly, it's not premeditated. Stuff gets caught in my throat or up my sleeve. If I make up the specifics, it's because we need them. Who would take cartoon leaves for real? 
green enough, but lacking veins and fuzz or shine, a bit of spirit or droop. Innocent little non-existent plant, could there be an innocent lie spoken in true ignorance? Well, no wonder we invented religion and its miles of answers. Laws, too, with all their ignorance is no excuse. Excuses may be true, though I admit many of mine have been falsehoods. A lie wearing a hat. Oh, butterscotch, this is all too frontal. Damn Ferrante and her gauntlet. My throwdown, once upon a time, is an invitation to one's imagination, which, pure as one's epithets, cannot be fat-checked. One's meaning mine, of course, since it's just me here circling the cul-de-sac I literally don't live on but carry everywhere, accidentally on purpose in search of accident, because random is not dishonest, no logic, no lie. Innocent by reason of insanity, enter the id, the original it girl, are out, big sister to ego and super e, loose and lawless and in charge. You know not what you do. You simply gleefully, awkwardly persist in doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much for reading that. That's a really fun poem. W would you say that this poem is about writing or is about that sort of the gray area of being a writer? It is very much so, of course, starting with Ferrante. And here I am trying to write and write something not untrue in the poem. Mm -hmm. um, but it quickly became a sort of game. And, and then I think basically it talks a lot about what is a lie. And, and are some things when we don't know that we're telling a lie a lie? You know, it's just, it, it's a game in a way to be taught thinking about it. But I, I think some of the questions are serious. Is there an innocent lie? Would you talk about including uh, the author, Elena Ferrante, in the poem, both in the epigraph and then she sort of name-checked in the piece itself? Um, well, I saw that quote of hers and I love her work. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, she... We don't know who she really is. That's a made-up name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that sort of tickled me also. It's a quote from Elena Ferrante. Who the heck is she? She's not telling us. Um, and her books, I think, are supposedly autobiographical, but of course, we don't know. Right. Um, so that idea of wishing I knew more about her um, and thinking about her dictum, that that's what she was trying to do, is write without lying, so I thought, well, I'll try that, but with my funny hat on, see what happens. Yeah, I really love this line about um, who would take cartoon leaves for real, <laughs> like if they were green, but they didn't have the veins and the fuzz and the things that you expect from real leaves. Um, that just really spoke to me. I, I think about you know my friends who are working on memoirs and my friends who are working on fiction. I work on fiction, and that you it felt to me like, like that's an excuse. Like we have to make up those little details and it's okay if they're not all true. I mean, is it, do you, do you agree? <laughs> that question who could take cartoon that brought you to that? I don't know. I'm not sure which way it could go. It could probably go both ways. Yes. We have to make up some of the details because we we're making up a story or we don't remember them or whatever. But, um, I guess, I, I wouldn't worry about whether cartoon tune leaves are a lie because they're not even pretending to be real. When something's pretending to be real, then it's more of a question, is it a lie or is it mm -hmm. not? 
That is true. <laughs> yeah, this is really fun. Would you um, talk about it in terms of structure? Um, just for our listeners, I guess I would say that they're couplets and the second line is indented. Yes. Uh -huh. um, it, I, I mean, is this sort of what you described earlier, where you sort of um, tried out different structures and saw where, where it seemed to fit and where it ended up? Oh, my God, I can't even remember all the different forms <laughs> this took. It, it's, it started in, um, it took three years and three months when I looked at the different iterations and the dates on them to finish this wow. poem. Um, and earlier on, it was all one chunk um, it, it took many different forms. I ultimately thought that I'm twisting my words so much and sort of being so jocular that you need a space in between every now and then to stay with me to, instead of, mm -hmm. you know, just being head down inside of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it changed as I took things out and, and put things in. Um, but I think it came to couplets pretty early. And the lie-truth dichotomy was just, you know, the heart of it from the beginning. And the right. ending came way, way later because I think I suffered for a long time about how the hell do I ever end this poem, which is mm. really a problem if you're interested in getting something done and you just can't get there. <laughs> yes. Um, but the idea that randomness, because, every, you know, we think about science and, you know, the big questions and the randomness that we don't understand, but probably underneath it, it's not random. Um, it just struck me that if, if it's coming, if it's not logic, then it's not, you don't grade it with the same um, yardstick. It gives you a sort of freedom from her dictum um, because she's talking about not telling the truth. And if, if you're just, I guess it sort of talks to a kind of poetry that we write nowadays often, which leaps from here to here to here. And it's about where the subconscious takes us and we don't have to have a uh we don't have to be able to explain it literally yeah when you were reading that um that part about you know if 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 there's no logic there's no lie and being random is sort of innocent by reason of insanity it reminded me of what you said earlier about kind of craving surprise when you're writing and that that's kind of where the magic happens you know that maybe that's our get out of jail free card it's like <laughs> yeah. well it surprised me <laughs> yeah i think so but it has to feel somehow like, I mean, sometimes uh, something happens by random and you look at the poem, you go, what the hell is that doing there? <laughs> it has to feel yes. like it has a place and is, it, it, it's, it's somehow um, important and central or at least matches up in some way. It can't just be. I mean, there are poems that are totally random and I have a hard time following some of them. But when they're just it's like either they seem to give me permission to believe in them anyway or they don't. Mm. Yeah, I really love that. Um, you know, you, I know you've, you've taught lots of lots and lots of students over the years. Do you have any sort of revision advice that you give them or process advice that you give them? Do, you know, if you had to sort of boil it down to a few things that you feel are, are the most helpful? Um, well, this is kind of going back to what I said earlier, but I, I, tr I mean, I give I do generative writing workshops now online on Zoom and mm -hmm. and I've been doing this kind of generative stuff um, forever. And my students, I insisted that they write to prompts. And the idea is not to get them to go any particular way that I want them to go, but to get them out of their own plan and their own head and let them follow mm -hmm. the words that come. So I always encourage people to utterly write blind. Um, and the play that when you were writing a draft, we're playing 
we're playing with our tools. You know, this is what we do. This is what we love to keep that sense of, I don't care whether it's working out right now. I don't have a will for it to fulfill. I'm playing with my blocks. Um, and so to just love that, but then not get attached to what you put down on the page as if that means it's a poem and it's done. You're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then get feedback because often we write and we know what we're saying. So we leave pieces out that we assume. So you need readers who don't even know your life necessarily to be able to see if what you think is on the page is on the page. Mm-hmm. And then to revise and revise and revise and revise. I mean, Ellen Voigt said, it's all revision till you die. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and revising really means listening to what people say about something. And if you try to ignore it and you have to come back to it, that's one thing. Or you can try to do what they say and then feel like it's wrong and go your own way anyway. It's just really being loose until you feel like it's coming together genuinely. Mm, yeah, I definitely need that that don't get a, attached advice every time I write anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so hard to write the first draft that I, I, I find it sort of painful to tear it apart, but necessary always. Well, sometimes so, we just so have it, to leave it in a drawer for a long time, especially if it's something we're attached to and we're not ready to t- take a hatchet to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only real fix that I've found for that problem. <laughs> yeah. So, so in addition to writing poetry, you also do translation work um, and a lot, a lot of it. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. Like, does that feel like a totally different muscle when you're doing it, or is there sort of a flow between those two writing states? Yeah, it's both. It it both feels like play in a different kind of a way. Um, it's the same tools because it's the English words that I'm playing with. Um, mm-hmm. There's less freedom because I have somebody I owe to keep, to uh, produce what they put mm-hmm. on the page. Um, I, I, tran- I, I translated novels for many years and uh, thought I would develop that muscle of, of writing long prose and no way. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> learned that I, it was fun to translate them, but um, I don't think that way. I think in smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly I've translated for years and years. I've done some translating, co-translating from other languages than Portuguese, but mostly I've translated Adelia Prado, um, several books of her work. I mean, several collections that include several books from her work. And, and I think that um, for me, it was about loyalty without being rigid and about loyal to the feelings of and the intent um, to the language, yes. But um, when I first went to Brazil to t- talk and meet with Adelia uh, about the translations I was doing, uh, she asked me to read back from APR and translate into Portuguese poems I'd put on the page. And when I did, she mm-hmm. said, you changed that image in one, you know, she was like, yes, yes. Ooh, what did you do there? And um, we talked about it. And um, then a couple of days later, she asked me if I had any of my poems in Portuguese for her to read. And I had one poem that a novelist, Ivan Angelo, had translated. And she read it and she read it again. And she said, what's going on in that line there? And I explained it. And she said, oh, he he went with the image, but he missed your intent. Hmm. And then her mouth fell open and she said, I get it. 
<laughs> it was the it was the best moment because wow. you know after that she, you know it was like I'm trying to reproduce the characteristics of her work. It's genuine. It's urgent. It's alive and inviting. It's disconcerting. It you know it's very very human. But the actual words I choose aren't as important as knowing what she meant by them. And mm-hmm. sometimes and so I sat with her over every poem and you know we I'd ask her to talk about it. Um, so yeah, it's different because you're, you're working with someone else's words, but it taught me a lot about my own writing too. Like, well then get down what you really mean. (laughs) Mm. Um, and what's behind it is important. Wow. That is so, so fascinating. I've always been sort of fascinated, especially by the act of translating poetry, because I feel like there's so many considerations, like the literal meaning, the figurative meaning, and then you have like sound and rhythm and music. I just, it seems like you must have to make choices in certain spots about wh- which things you can preserve and which things you, you can't. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think that whether it's translation or, or writing, the difference between doing novels and doing poems, because you can't, I mean, that's why I like poems, because I can comb over every single word many, 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 many times. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to work faster with novels, and I can't imagine how hard it is to work on a novel and accumulate all those pages and re- go back over them. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so, it's so different. The volume. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. I'm not sure I can recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> so, so always our last question is just, just to ask what you're working on now, like what we should look for next from you. Well, I'm about, I don't know, half or two thirds of the way to my next book. And, um, that always means that, there are poems that are in the manuscript now that probably end, won't end up fitting and that there are many that need to be written. And um, mm-hmm. I'm happy in November, I'm going to Mass Mocha for two weeks to leave everything else at home and try to work on where this book is going. Um, so it's a lot of in which poems, it's a lot about um, living in a body. My first book was We Live in Bodies and that never goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also trying to see how the larger world can come in, the things I'm worried about. And, um, you know, we've looked at two poems that are pretty jaunty in a lot of ways, but I think it's important to articulate um, the hard parts of life. And, um, Mm. you know, Eddie Hirsch said, the articulation of despair or of grief makes you feel befriended, more befriended than lonely as a reader. So that I thought Mm. that was wonderful, that even if we're taking in something that is about grief, we know we've experienced it. So there's a certain comradeship involved. Right. Um, so yeah, trying to find how many layers and notes and how much breadth I can get into it. And meanwhile, just also work on the individual poems. Mm. Well, that sounds great. Ellen Dore Watson, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Yeah, you're great to talk to. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can read Ellen's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. <laughs>